podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio Podcast. A podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. As always, thank you so much for joining us. We really do appreciate it. Our semi-vacation is over. For the last few weeks, we've only released one episode per week. But with the new season starting this upcoming weekend... We're going back to twice weekly. We did use some of that time to work on our social media platforms. In addition to Twitter, you can now find us on Instagram and Facebook as well. We also gave our podcast website a bit of love. It's essentially a catalog of all our episodes that are free to listen to online. So if your phone is dead or if for whatever reason you're stuck at a computer with no podcast player available, you can find our episodes there. The website is Podcast. Dot podbean.com. Again, that's ForzaNapoliCalcioPodcast.podbean.com. But enough about that, let's get to today's episode. In part one, we'll cover the latest news around Napoli, Serie A, and Europe. In part two, we'll recap Napoli's friendly match against Pescara on Friday. And in part three, we'll do our first of a two-part preview on the upcoming campaign. Today, we'll focus on the top six, which we'll cover in a bit more detail and then next episode we'll cover the rest of the league. So getting right into it, I want to start with the whole Aurelio De Laurentiis COVID situation. On Wednesday of last week, there was a league assembly with the 20 club presidents, which we'll get to in a little bit. But after the meeting, De Laurentiis was stopped by the media on his way out and he wasn't wearing a mask. He was asked about the transfer market and his response was, for the market you have to talk to Conte, but not that of Inter, the one of the government. The Conte he was referring to was the Prime Minister of Italy, Giuseppe Conte. What I think the Laurentiis was referring to there is the Italian government's unwillingness to even partially reopen football stadiums. That means clubs are pulling in less revenue, which then affects their ability to sell and buy players. In terms of selling players, the other clubs are unwilling to or unable to make the offers we saw pre-COVID, which is what we're seeing with Manchester City and Koulibaly. In that case, the club is unwilling to pay because they're certainly capable of meeting our demands. And with less revenue, it's more difficult to buy players. In Napoli's case, the inability to sell players for what they're worth inhibits their ability to purchase players because many of the players Napoli are linked to are replacements for other players that they're currently trying to sell. Continuing with the Koulibaly example, Napoli lost out on Gabriel because we were not able to sell Koulibaly on time. He ended up at Arsenal, and it just so happens that he scored in Arsenal's first match on Saturday. Now, obviously, the government has good reason to keep stadiums closed, which is because of the coronavirus. The irony in all of this, or perhaps you could call it the karma in all of this, is that the very next day, De Laurentiis, and unfortunately his wife Jacqueline as well, tested positive for coronavirus. Now, I want to take a minute to address this, because there was a huge backlash against De Laurentiis, some of which was going a little too far, and I think a lot of people were judging a little too harshly without knowing all the facts. To be clear, I'm not defending De Laurentiis or his behavior, particularly his decision to not wear a mask when leaving the assembly, but at the same time, people were making comments that were crossing the line a little bit, so I do want to present the facts, at least as far as I understand them. 
First, I heard a number of the other presidents were very upset when they learned that De Laurentiis tested positive. What a lot of people either don't know or simply ignored is that the league issued a statement confirming that masks were not mandatory because other COVID protocols were being respected, including social distancing. Claudio Lotito was asked about this and he acknowledged that indeed there were protocols in place. He also pointed out that as a football president, he gets swabbed every four days, as I imagine many of the presidents do, and to my knowledge, no other presidents have tested positive since. The most likely president to catch the virus from De Laurentiis is Benevento president Oreste Vigorito. Vigorito accepted De Laurentiis' invitation to fly back to Napoli together on his private jet. Vigorito was tested after hearing De Laurentiis was positive, and his test came back negative. Second, De Laurentiis did not know at the time that he was positive. In fact, he did a swab the prior Saturday at Castel di Sangro, and the test came back negative. He was also asymptomatic. De Laurentiis confirmed this to La Repubblica, saying, If I had imagined I could have had COVID, I never would have set out on this journey. I had no symptoms. All he had was an upset stomach, which he attributed to some bad seafood he ate the night before. Again, I'm not defending him here. If you have any type of symptom, at the very least, you should be wearing a mask. But anyone who thinks De Laurentiis was attending this meeting and not wearing a mask, knowing he had COVID-19, is simply wrong. As soon as he found out, De Laurentiis returned to his home in Rome, where he has been self-quarantining and recovering from the virus. According to Radio Kiss Kiss, the federal prosecutor's office is considering opening an investigation, particularly if another president tests positive, which I think is a little ridiculous based on what we have already mentioned. It sounds like the recovery is going well, as obviously this virus is more dangerous for someone his age, so that's great news. The other big story this past week was and continues to be the ongoing saga with Arkadush Milik. Last week, we started to see reports that Cengiz Under is no longer part of the deal with Napoli. Some were reporting that Roma are no longer selling Under because of the injury to Nicolo Zagnolo. Others are reporting that Napoli are no longer interested in Under, which is fine by me, and that Napoli won 35 million euros in cash for Milik. Then on Friday, Napoli released their squad list for the friendly against Pescara, and Milik was curiously left off of the squad. According to the Gazzetta, Gattuso said he left Milik out because with only a week left before the new campaign begins, he needs to focus only on the players that will be available to him, obviously insinuating that Milik will not be there, perhaps whether he likes it or not. We then learn that Milik or his entourage communicated to Napoli sporting director Cristiano Giuntoli that he would like to play out his contract with Napoli. Many people understandably interpreted this to be a retaliation from Milik for not being included in the squad against Pescara and for how this whole situation has played out, including Napoli stating publicly that if he does not move on, he will essentially be benched the year before a major European tournament. There were some reports suggesting that Milik would not leave because none of the other interested clubs were bigger than Napoli. If that's true, this decision would cost Napoli quite a bit of money. The asking price at the time, as I mentioned, was 35 million euros. Even if that price was dropped to 20 million euros, that's still a lot of money that Napoli would be losing out on, in addition to that, if Milik stays, then Napoli would have to pay his salary as well. After the match against Pescara, Gattuso told Sky Sport that both he and the club were clear in their intentions to extend Milik's contract, but Milik chose not to renew. As a result, the club signed Petania and Osimen. Then on Sunday, the reports were that Milik again would indeed accept a move to Roma. Some were speculating that this was because Juve had completely lost interest in Milik and would not even sign him on a Bosman next season so Milik should stop dreaming about playing for Juve. 
Juve are heavily linked to Luis Suarez. There were also reports that they were linked to Olivier Giroud, but Giroud himself has denied that rumor. If Juve signed Suarez, then of course they would not need Edin Zeko from Roma. And if Juve do sign Zeko, then Roma would sign Milik. When I spoke to Daniel Lucci, we suggested that perhaps Roma would still buy Milik even if Zeko stays. I've thought about that a little bit more since we did that interview, and with Roma's financial situation, they simply cannot afford to pay both of those players' salaries, which would total about 12 million euros a year. Friedkin have been fairly quiet since acquiring the club, but one thing they did say is that while they love the club and they love the city of Rome, they will run the club the same way they run any of their other businesses, which to me means they will not spend irresponsibly. Roma need to get their financials in order. For a comprehensive breakdown of Roma's financial situation, you definitely want to check out the latest episode of the AS Roma Press podcast with John Solano. The short of it is Roma are 250 million euros in debt, and barring third-party investment, they would need to generate 100 million euros in plus valenza, which is basically profits on the sale of players, by the end of next season or June 2021. It does sound like this whole situation might be coming to a resolution. The latest reports are that Napoli have agreed to terms on a one-year loan for 3 million euros with a 15 million euro obligation to buy and up to 8 million euros in bonuses. According to Corriere della Sera, half of the bonuses would be tied to Roma making the Champions League, which I think is highly unlikely. So in my mind, the total value for Milik is 22 million euros, which is nearly half of the original asking price of 40 million. With only one year left on his contract though, I think that's as much as Napoli are going to get and at this point they should be pretty happy with this deal. All that remains is for Milik to agree to terms with Roma, which could happen as soon as this week, perhaps even before you listen to this episode. So that's the Milik situation. Before I move on to the Serie A news, I do want to quickly address a couple of new names that we've been linked to. The latest name that's getting a lot of buzz is Cagliari's Nahitan Nandez. Corriere del Mezzogiorno are reporting that Juntoli met with Cagliari sporting director Pierluigi Carta last Monday in Milano. Cagliari supposedly valued Nandes at 35 to 40 million euros, but Napoli would be able to reduce the price by including Adam Unas in the deal. He's valued at 15 million euros and would fit well in Di Francesco's 4-3-3. Corriere del Mezzogiorno are also reporting that Napoli are once again interested in Emerson Palmieri and are seeking a loan with option to buy. They suggest, however, that the player's salary could be an obstacle as Napoli are only willing to pay 2.5 million euros while the player asks for 4 million Another player that Napoli were previously linked to and perhaps are once again is Watford's Gerard Delofeu. Moving on to Serie A, last Wednesday FIGC President Gabriela Gravina met with FIFA President Gianni Infantino. After the meeting, Gravina gave a press conference where he echoed the words of the Undersecretary of Health Sandra Zampa regarding reopening stadiums. As Zampa said, reopening schools is a higher priority in Italy right now. He added that for the 2020-2021 campaign, Clubs will be permitted five substitutions once again, subject to ratification of the change. Lega Serie A president Paolo Dalpino also spoke to the media on Wednesday after the league assembly. According to ANSA, Dalpino announced that on Thursday a law would be passed that will streamline the bureaucratic process that has made it impossible to renovate or build new stadiums. He also announced that the 20 clubs voted unanimously in favor of creating a media company, which we've known for some time is going to happen. They also appear to have agreed on the financing or ownership structure. As we previously reported, three options were on the table. A private equity investment by a consortium who would own up to a maximum of 15% of the company. The second option was a debt financing model. 
and the third option was a hybrid of the two. It appears the private equity model is the preferred route, and now the league will choose which consortium to get in bed with, either CVC, Advent, and FSI, or Bain Capital with MB Renaissance Partners. That decision will be made at the next meeting. Last episode, we went through the SETI A calendar. Since then, we've gotten the SETI B and Primavera calendars. SETI B will commence one week after SETI A on September 26th and will end on May 7th. The Primavera Championship will begin on the same day as SETI A, which is September 19th, and will end on May 15th. Finally, in Europe, the English Premier League began its 2020-2021 campaign this past weekend. I watched three matches. The first was Everton at Tottenham. This was an intriguing matchup between two decorated managers in Jose Mourinho and Carlo Ancelotti. As much as I wanted to see James Rodriguez and Abdoulaye Ducouré, the main reason I tuned in was to see former Napoli player Alain in action. I thought he was excellent in this match. Ancelotti used him as a regista in the 4-3-3. The fact that Ancelotti used the 4-3-3 was in itself interesting and a little frustrating when you consider that he was so determined to use the 4-4-2 at Napoli when we had a squad built for the 4-3-3. But anyway, back to Alain, the Regista spot made a lot of sense for him as he's lost half a step at the age of 29, he'll actually turn 30 in January, so he's no longer got the pace to be a box-to-box midfielder. His role in this match was essentially to sit back and make himself available if Everton had to play the ball back, which they did quite often. Ancelotti's game plan was clearly to control the flow of play, which Everton did very well in this match. Alain did make the occasional switch, but for the most part he played short one-touch passes. We also saw glimpses of the older line where he'd draw a foul or fight off the opposition with his strength or quickly close down a Tottenham player. I know some people were upset to see Alain have a good match after he didn't contribute much in his final 18 months with Napoli, suggesting he clearly could have played better for us. The fact is, I don't think anyone doubted that Alain was capable of playing well. His talent was never the issue, he simply lacked the motivation, and when you're not motivated, that's going to show up on the pitch. A great way to restore your motivation is a change in scenery and a fresh start with a new club. I personally don't harbor any ill will. He gave us three and a half very good years, so I wish him the best. The second match I watched was Arsenal's 3-0 win over newly promoted Fulham. I watched this match to see how former Napoli target Gabriel fared in his debut with Arsenal. Sure enough, he scored his first goal of the season on a header from a corner kick. Had he not scored though, I wouldn't have been terribly impressed with his first match. You could see he was still adapting to his new club. Arsenal had a scare early in the match when Ainsley Maitland-Niles played a pass back to Gabriel inside his own box. Gabriel decided to let the pass roll on to his keeper Brent Leno, not realizing that Abu Bakar Kumara was charging him down. Kumara actually got there first, but Leno managed to keep the ball out. The final match I watched was Liverpool against Leeds. I watched this one for a couple of reasons. First, because of the scoreline. Who doesn't want to see a 7-goal match? The second reason was to see Leeds return to the Premier League, and the third reason was to see another former Napoli target, Robin Koch, in his EPL debut. Koch had a rough match, he handled the ball in the box to concede the first penalty. It wasn't intentional, but his arm was definitely away from his body and this was the correct call. Mo Salah stepped up and converted that penalty. Then on the second goal, he was marking Virgil van Dijk. Koch bumped into Sadio Mane, which gave Van Dijk the extra step to win the header, which he put home to restore Liverpool's lead. So neither of these former targets had particularly strong matches, but this is just one match. We'll have to wait until we have more of a sample size before we can make any judgments. 
In other news, Andrea Agnelli, who in addition to being president of Juventus, is also the president of the European Club Association. Last Wednesday, Agnelli delivered a fairly grim speech at the 24th ECA Annual Assembly. He said, because of COVID, European clubs face a rebate of 575 million euros to Champions League and Europa League broadcasters for the upcoming tournament. So that's money that will not be distributed to clubs. He said we've seen a £330 million rebate in the Premier League and a downturn in the Bundesliga domestic rights of about £181 million. He added that European clubs as a whole are looking at a revenue decrease of approximately £3.6 billion over the next two years. That is due to an entire revenue stream being lost with matches being played behind closed doors, a reduction in sponsorship revenue, and a projected 20-30% to decrease in players' values. Finally, he indicated that because of the current crisis, any discussions of changing the format of the Champions League for 2024 and beyond have been stalled. Finally, UEFA has confirmed the dates for the Champions League and Europa League group stage draws and award ceremonies. The Champions League draw and awards will be held on October 1st, and the Europa League draw and awards will be held on October 2nd. Because of coronavirus, the event has been moved from Athens, Greece to Neon, Switzerland, which is where UEFA is headquartered and the event will take place behind closed doors. So that will do for the news. In part two, we'll recap Napoli's friendly against Pescara. Napoli were supposed to play two friendlies over the weekend, first against Pescara on Friday and then against Sporting Lisbon on Sunday, but the latter was cancelled after three Sporting players tested positive for COVID-19, so this part will be a bit shorter as we only have one match to cover. Zielinski, Politano al limite, gioca di sponda ancora per Zielinski, doppio passo, Zielinski, gran gol di Piotr Zielinski, il Napoli passa 1-0 al ventitresimo minuto. Ah, dentro per Petagna, pallone morbido. D'altra parte arriva Ciciretti che segna il gol del 2-0 per il Napoli. Per Ciciretti è facilissimo spingere il pallone in, in area. Mer- Petagna ancora sul destro, sta arrivando Mertens. 3-0. Ancora in versione assist man Andrea Petagna. Entrato da pochi minuti ma già bravo. Nel quarto gol il Napoli comunque lo segnerà proprio allo scadere dei due minuti di recupero lo segna Petagna e quindi poker del Napoli contro il Pescara a questo, possiamo, a questo punto possiamo chiudere Napoli batte Pescara 4 0 grazie per l'attenzione so as you heard Napoli won this one 4 0 on goals by Zelinski, Ciciretti, Mertens and Petagna there were a lot of firsts in this match for Amir Rachmani and Victor Osman it was their first match at the San Paolo but it was Andrea Petagna who stole the show. It was not only his first match at the San Paolo, but also his first match for Napoli after he missed a summer retreat due to COVID-19. Petagna came on for Victor Osimhen in the 69th minute with Napoli ahead 1-0. In his 21-plus minutes, he was involved in three goals. All three plays were different, and each time Petagna showed a different strength. On the first goal, he made an incisive run into the box. Insigne's through ball wasn't great, it pulled Petagna away from the goal rather than setting up the shot, but Petagna made the most of it showing off his technical abilities with a chip square ball over the keeper, 
that left an easy tap-in for Amato Cicciretti. On the second goal, Petania showed his patience and calmness on the ball. This time it was Mertens that played him through. He cut in to split between Elizalde and Ciaffardini. Now, most strikers would have taken the shot there, even on their off foot. Instead, Petania waited for half a second for Mertens to rejoin the attack, then laid the ball off to Mertens who had a better angle and put it away. And on the third goal, he showed us his ability to finish, which was something we lacked last season. Mertens picked out Mario Rui's run on the left side of the box. Rui squared to Petania and he hit it first time, tucking his left-footed shot inside the far post. Even though he didn't score, Victor Osman was still very good, but he didn't dominate this match like he did the previous friendlies for a few reasons. First, Pescara are a far better side than Castel di Sangro, L'Aquila, and Teramo. Just to give you an idea of the difference in quality, Castel di Sangro play in the Eccellenza, which is the fifth division of Italian football. The Eccellenza has 464 teams across 28 divisions. L'Aquila play in Serie D, which has 166 teams across 9 divisions and Teramo play in Serici, which has 60 teams across 3 divisions. And Pescara actually held their own in the first half. They forced Meret to make a quality save early in the first half, and they hit the upright on a well-worked play that started and ended with Christian Galano. He intercepted Koulibaly's pass intended for Gulam on the right side of the pitch. Pescara patiently passed the ball around to the left side before Buzelato broke into the middle of the pitch, he picked out Galano's run on the right side. Galano cut to his left foot, but his shot didn't have enough bend on it, hitting the upright before rolling out for a goal kick. The second reason I thought Osman didn't dominate was because in this match, he was paired with Lozano and Politano in the 4-3-3 formation. He seemed to thrive in the 4-2-3-1 with that extra playmaker around him. The third reason was that he just wasn't getting the bounces in this match. Osman nearly scored in the opening five minutes of the match, Scognamilio played the ball back for Fiorillo. I don't think Fiorillo realized how quick Osman is with his long strides. Osman immediately closed him down to win possession in front of the empty goal, but the ball got stuck between his feet for just a second, which was long enough for Drudi to slide in to make the tackle. He had another chance just before the break. Osman received Demis' pass with his back to goal. He faked the return pass to create the space to turn and shoot, but he got just under the ball and missed the target. And then in the 62nd minute, Osman should have had an assist after doing really well to win possession and teeing up Cicciretti, but somehow Cicciretti missed the target on what seemed like a sure goal. But the reality is, you can't expect Osman to score hat-tricks every match, especially against top clubs in Serie A. For me, this match demonstrated the importance of having a player like Patania. This is something we've discussed in previous episodes, but Patania has a unique set of skills. He's a big man, so he can hold up play but he's also very skillful and has great vision. By the way, we did a player profile in Patania back on episode 7, so if you want to learn more about him and his journey to this point, definitely check that one out. With those skills, Patania offers a completely different type of threat than Osiman or Mertens do, which is great to have when those guys are having an off day. That's why a swap of Patania for someone like Kevin Lasagna or Andrea Bellotti just didn't make sense to me, I really like both of those players, but they don't offer much more than what we already have in Osimen and Mertens. So that was the main talking point for me. I do want to quickly highlight a few smaller talking points. First, Piotr Zielinski scored the opening goal of the match in the 23rd minute. He played a give and go with Politano at the top of the box. Politano did well to lay the ball off with his back to goal. Zielinski froze the defender with a step over and then finished with a low shot to beat Fiorillo. Hopefully that goal boosts his confidence because we really do need a bit more production out of him. Don't get me wrong, I value everything else he does probably more than most people actually do, 
but if he can add a few more goals, I think he has the potential to be a top midfielder in the game. We mentioned earlier that Napoli lined up in the 4-3-3. For those who didn't watch the match, we started Khalidou Koulibaly and Amir Rahmani at centre-back, Giovanni Di Lorenzo at right-back and Fauzi Gulam at left-back, Diego Demme, Fabian Ruiz and Piotr Zielinski played in the midfield, and Victor Osimhen started at striker with Chucky Lozano on his left and Matteo Politano on his right. In the second half, Gattuso turned over the entire squad, which makes sense given the friendly against Sporting was supposed to be only two days later. At the half, he replaced Meret with David Ospina. He also replaced the entire back line. Mario Rui came in for Gulam, Elcid Kusai came in for Di Lorenzo, and Manolas and Maximovic came in for Koulibaly and Rachmani. Also at the half, Lorenzo Insigne replaced Lozano and Dries Mertens replaced Matteo Politano. I thought Napoli looked much better in the second half, which I think was the result of a combination of things, including the quality of players that came in and Napoli's fitness being better than Pescara's. Mario Rui continues to show how important he is to this club, especially in the attack. His runs on the left wing really improve Napoli's attack. When Rui makes those runs, he naturally stretches the opponent's back line, which then creates space for Insigne to work in, whether it is to play a bending shot to the back post or to distribute the ball. In the 57th minute, Amaro Cicciretti replaced Zelinski. I thought Cicciretti played really well despite missing that chance set up by Osimhen. At the same time, Sebastiano Luperto replaced Fabiano Ruiz in the midfield, which seemed awfully curious to me at the time. Alif Elmas was included in the squad list but was not present at the San Paolo. As it turns out, Elmas was the last player to return from Nations League duties and his test result had not arrived prior to the match so he was not able to participate. A couple of players played against former clubs. Luca Palmiero replaced them in the 69th minute. Palmiero spent last season on loan at Pescara. And former Napoli player Mirko Valdifiori came off the bench in the second half for Pescara. The last thing I want to highlight is that in the 78th minute, Mertens fell pretty hard on his lower back. That's something I want to keep an eye on. If you recall, Dries missed a few matches at the end of last season with a tailbone injury. And he seemed to labor a little bit after this fall. This is yet another reason why it helps to have Osimhen and Patania because while Mertens is still in great shape and has a great deal to offer, at 33 years of age he will be more prone to injury. So that's our review of Napoli vs Pescara. Like I said, Napoli were not able to play against Sporting this past Sunday, so that was our final friendly before we kick off the season against Parma this upcoming Sunday. That will do for part 2 and part 3 will preview the top clubs for the upcoming season.
We'll close the pod with the first part of a preview of the upcoming season. Today we'll cover the top of the table, and then next episode we'll cover the rest. So let's start with 6th place. I have Lazio dropping down a few places to finish in 6th. Lazio's success last season was largely a result of playing in only one competition after being eliminated in the group stage of the Europa League and in the quarterfinals of the Coppa Italia. This year, Lazio will be playing in the Champions League, so unless their strategy is to crash out of the Champions League group stage and the Coppa Italia in an early round again, this squad will be stretched pretty thin. A lot was made about Lazio's lack of squad depth after the restart last season. That wasn't an issue when they were playing one match a week before the pandemic hit, but with the compressed schedule, Inzaghi continued to roll out the same squad and you could see that players were tiring out about two-thirds of the way into every match. One of the biggest mistakes I thought Inzaghi made over the course of the season was not rotating his squad against some of the lesser opponents. When the injuries began to pile up and he had no choice but to use his bench, the players he used were ill-prepared due to a lack of playing time in competitive matches. You do have to give Claudio Lotito credit for at least trying to add squad depth this summer. He was unlucky to lose out on David Silva, but Lazio did sign Pepe Reina to back up Thomas Strakosha, which may not seem like a big deal, but he does bring plenty of experience in European competition. They also added Gonzalo Escalante, who's a center midfielder that spent the last five seasons in La Liga with Ibar. They also acquired Vedat Mariki from Fenerbahce, and it seems Spal player Mohamed Fares will join any day now. Of all the top clubs, I think Lazio will be the most active for the remainder of the transfer window, which makes it difficult to predict how they will finish next year. The other reason Lazio had success last season was because they managed to stay healthy for pretty much the entire season, which again comes back to squad depth. The season prior, Luis Alberto missed 10 matches and Sergei Milinkovic-Savic missed 8 matches due to various injuries, and Lazio finished in 8th place. The year before that, Chiro Immobile missed 7 matches due to injury and Lazio finished in 5th place. It would seem for Lazio to have any chance of qualifying for the Champions League again, they'll need to hope that their big three avoid injury again. They'll also have more competition this year, both from clubs that I think that will surpass them, which I'll get to in a moment, and from a few I'll get to in next episode, namely Roma and Sassuolo. One of the teams Lazio will have to fend off is AC Milan, who I have finishing in 5th. Milan have retained some key players in Anti Rebic, Alexis Salamakers, Simon Kajer, and Zlatan Ibrahimovic. They've also made some important additions for the future. Pierre Kalulu seems like a promising young right-back, and they added Raheem Diaz from Real Madrid. Both have the potential to be low-risk, high-reward players. Kalulu joins from Lyon's B team, having never featured for the senior squad, but has plenty of experience with France's U20 squad. Similarly, Diaz was unable to break into Real Madrid's starting 11 with any level of consistency, but he has also played for Spain's youth teams throughout his career. Undoubtedly, the most important signing though is Sandro Tonali, who joins from Brescia. Not surprisingly, Tonali was highly sought after and is considered by many to be a generational talent. That said, I think a lot of people are overestimating the impact Tonali or any of these three young players will have this upcoming season. There's a good possibility that none of these three young talents feature prominently in Milan's starting 11, at least not at the start of the season. Milan were the best team in Serie A after the restart, so I expect Pioli to use a very similar squad to start the 2020-2021 campaign that he did to end the 2019-2021. I can see Pioli slowly integrating Tonali into the squad as the season progresses. Speaking of Pioli, a big question mark around this season is how he will do as the permanent manager rather than as an interim one. The last time Pioli was in charge of a Milan-based squad was when he joined Inter in November 2016. He got off to an impressive start, winning 12 of his first 16 Serie A matches that season, 
but then he didn't win a single match after that, losing 5 and drawing 2. Other than the 2014-2015 campaign, when his Lazio side finished in 3rd, Pioli's teams have failed to finish higher than 8th when he's in charge for the entire season. Now, this will be a bit different in that he has a very good assistant coach in Zlatan Ibrahimovic. You can argue that Ibra's contract extension is more valuable for the contribution he makes off the pitch than on it. You also have to give Paolo Maldini a ton of credit for setting up this club for success in the future, but this project is going to take some time. While I do think that Milan will continue to trend in the right direction this season, I don't think they will crack the top four. Up until about a week ago, I had Atalanta finishing in fourth and was actually contemplating picking them to finish outside of the top four. That was largely because at that time, Josip Ilicic had not returned to the squad and we saw how different this Atalanta team looked without Ilicic after the restart. That's not to say the team's play was entirely because Ilicic was not there. I think Gasparini intentionally changed the style of play because of the condensed schedule. We saw Atalanta play a far more conservative style of play in the final stretch, and as a result, they scored and conceded far fewer goals. Nevertheless, Atalanta only lost one league match after the restart, which was their final game of the season against Inter. What this showed us was despite their firepower, Atalanta are capable of playing a different style than what we've come to expect. Another reason I was expecting a decline up until about a week ago was because we weren't quite sure of Papu Gomez's future with the club, especially with Saudi club Al Nasser reportedly offering him a salary of 22.5 million euros per season for three years, but Papu has since elected to stay in Bergamo. So that means Atalanta's deadly trio of Duvan Zapata, Papu Gomez, and Josip Ilicic will be back for yet another season. You do have to wonder though how much longer they can play in Gasparini's very demanding system, assuming the Atalanta boss goes back to it. I think Ilicic will be a bit of a wild card. He's now 32 years old and his body is starting to break down. He also missed the end of the season for personal reasons and a lot of people thought he might retire. So you do have to wonder how that layoff might have impacted him both physically and psychologically. Papu is also 32, but he doesn't appear to be slowing down anytime soon. Finally, earlier in the summer, it seemed as though all of Atalanta's wingbacks wanted to leave the club. Timothy Castagna moved to Leicester City in the Premier League, and he actually scored in his debut this past weekend. It seemed Hans Hattabor wanted out as well. After being eliminated from the Champions League, he felt he'd achieved all there was to achieve at Atalanta, and that it would be very interesting to play in a different competition. I'm not sure how he could have felt that way after coming within minutes of reaching the Champions League semi-finals, but he's since changed his tune and now wants to stay. Atalanta have also bolstered their lineup, adding Alexei Miranchuk from Lokomotiv Moscow, Christian Romero from Juventus, and Cristiano Piccini from Valencia. And of course, Ladea still have Ruslan Malinovsky, Martin Darun, Remo Freuler, and Luis Muriel, who are all coming off excellent seasons. So after what could have been a disastrous summer, Atalanta returned at least as strong as they were last season. The question becomes, did they do enough to repeat or perhaps improve upon their third place finish last season? To do that, Atalanta will have to fend off the clubs that finished below them, and there's one side that I think is eager to reclaim its rightful place in the Champions League. That side, of course, is Napoli. Now, you might think I'm biased because I'm a Napoli supporter, but I genuinely believe that Napoli will finish in third place this season. After such a tumultuous season, I think many have forgotten that Napoli have missed the Champions League only three times in the last 10 campaigns. The first was in the 2011-2012 season, when Serie A had only three Champions League spots and Napoli missed out by only three points. The second time was in the 2014-2015 campaign, when they finished six points back, and the third time was this past season. 
I see a lot of people commenting on Twitter about Napoli's failed summer transfer window, and I can see why some people might think that if they're looking at this summer in isolation, but the truth is that Napoli started their rebuild in January, signing Demme, Lobotka, Politano, Rachmani, and Petania. Though Napoli have made only one signing this summer, they've addressed the club's biggest weakness, which is goal scoring. Victor Osimhen is highly rated, and though Napoli's friendlies have been against lower division clubs, Osimhen has shown that he has all the qualities you look for in a number 9. Aside from Lazio, I think Napoli could be the most active of the remaining top clubs on the transfer market. Other than Milik and Koulibaly, the other transactions will be less consequential, and it seems more and more likely that players we thought were destined to leave are now talking about renewing, including Elsie Kusai and Nikola Maksimovic. Then you have Gennaro Gattuso, who has been instrumental in terms of turning this club around. Though it's still a work in progress, Gattuso has done a tremendous job in improving the player's mentality and work ethic. I also think he's underrated as a tactician. I still hear a lot of people saying he still has to improve his tactics, but I think he's come a long way in that department. Yes, at the start of his time with Napoli, they were very defensive-minded, but Gattuso has showed that if he wants to, the team can play more attack-minded football. I thought Gattuso showed his might after the restart, rotating 6 or 7 players between matches and still achieving results. And now, in the summer friendlies, we've seen Gattuso deploy a 4-2-3-1 formation and use the long ball more, which better suits Osimhen's strengths and allows both Osimhen and Mertens to start. So with the players on the squad and Gattuso at the helm, I think Napoli will be very good this year. And while I ultimately don't think they win the Scudetto, I do think they can compete for the Scudetto. That said, I think Napoli are still a step behind Inter. I think Victor Osman will be very good, but he's largely unproven, whereas Inter have plenty of proven players, led by Romelu Lukaku. In fact, Inter are loading up on experience, perhaps a little too much, which most Interisti are rightfully unhappy about. Inter have already signed 34-year-old Alexander Kolarov from Roma, and 33-year-old Arturo Vidal is on the verge of signing with them. Now, this change in strategy seems to have been the outcome of a meeting in late August between Antonio Conte and the Inter Brass, including both CEOs Alessandro Antonello and Beppe Marotta, sporting director Piero Auxilio and club president Steven Zhang. Up until that point, Inter had been the frontrunners for Sandro Tonali and Marash Kumbula. They've since stated that they can't afford those players, which is not really the case. My take on this is that Inter have decided they want to end their 10-year drought and win the Scudetto this year even if that comes at the expense of the next five years. Now, that's gotten a lot of Interisti down, but I think that's distracted some people from the fact that Inter are still very, very good today. I think in a way, Inter benefited from COVID and from Barcelona's financial struggles in that a player who seemed destined to leave in Lautaro Martinez has remained, so the combination of Lukaku and Martinez remains intact, not to mention Alexi Sanchez, who was also very good at the restart, now being a permanent member of the squad. They still have Barella, Sensi, and Brozovic in the middle, and they still have Bastoni, Devry, and Skriniar at the back. Vidal and Kolarov are still very serviceable players despite their age, and Inter did add a very good young player in Ashraf Hakimi, who is a huge upgrade over Antonio Kandreva on the right wing. If they can offload a few players like even Perisic and Jean Mario, then perhaps Inter can also go after a player like Ungolo Kante as well. Of course, the other question mark, like many of the top sides this season, is the coach. In Inter's case, the question is whether Antonio Conte can keep his job, both because of the results on the pitch and because of his public outbursts off of it. If he can keep his cool, there's no reason in my mind why Inter should not be contending for the Scudetto. So by process of elimination, that means I still have Juventus as the team to beat. 
This is something I spoke to Daniel Lucci about on our last bonus pod, but for those who haven't heard it yet, I think we might be overreacting a little bit to Andrea Pirlo being manager. I'm sure there are plenty of people who disagree, so let me explain why I feel that way. I get that Pirlo has never coached a match at any level, let alone in Serie A, but Juventus managed to win the Scudetto last season, even though it was arguably their worst season in nearly a decade. Now, obviously, Sadi is far more experienced than Pirlo, but Sadi also tried to employ a system that Juventus were not built to play, and Juve still won the league. That was largely because of the play of two players, Cristiano Ronaldo and Paolo Dybala, who, by the way, are still at Juventus. Juve also improved their squad, they signed Dejan Kulusevski in January, they got rid of Pjanic who was pretty awful last year and replaced him with Artur. We'll see how Artur does but he can't be much worse than Pjanic was. They also purchased Weston McKinney from Schalke who like Artur, we don't know exactly how he'll do in Serie A but many of the top Juventus pundits awarded him the man of the match in Juve's recent 5-0 friendly win over Novara. Juve's biggest weakness last year was their midfield. But the one midfielder who played consistently well was Rodrigo Bentancur. We also saw a much improved Adrian Rabiot after the restart, so Juve's midfield has the potential to be much better this year than they were last year, not to mention they'll be under the tutelage of one of the greatest midfield minds of all time. Juve have moved on from a few players, Blaise Matuidi was sold to Inter Miami, and Gonzalo Higuain appears to be on his way to Miami as well. Juve have been linked to quite a few players to replace Iguain. Arkadouj Malik was one of those players at one point. The leading candidates at the moment appear to be Edin Zeko and Luis Suarez, who I think are suitable replacements when you consider that Ronaldo and Dybala will probably do most of the goal scoring anyway. They also loaned Christian Romero and sold Simone Muratore to Atalanta, so Juve have generated funds off of players who would otherwise not feature much anyways, which is good business. It's hard to find any weaknesses in this squad really. The first few months of the season will be critical, we already mentioned the new coach, we're not sure what system Pirlo will use. Juve played a 3-5-2 in that friendly against Novara which I must admit makes me scratch my head a bit. First Dybala didn't play so Kulusevski played up top with Ronaldo, but even if you moved Kulusevski to one of the wingback positions to free up an attacking spot for Dybala, where would Zeko or Suarez play? I think it would make more sense to play three men up front with Ronaldo on the left and Kulusevski on the right, so both can cut in to their strong foot, and then have either Suarez or Zeko in the middle. Also, I don't think Juve have enough depth at center back to play a three-man back line. In the Novara match, they used Bonucci in the middle, Chiellini on the left, and Danilo on the right, even though Danilo is not really a center half. Matthias De Ligt will miss the first few months of the season after having his shoulder surgically repaired, though Mary Demiral could probably fill that spot, but Chiellini is not getting any younger and missed nearly all of last season due to injury so if he goes down the next man up is Daniela Rugani who in my mind is a huge downgrade. For that reason I think a 4 man backline makes more sense for this squad but we'll see, I could just be biased towards the 4-3-3. In any event I hope I'm wrong but I think this team is just too strong and will win their 10th consecutive Scudetto. So that will do it for this episode, I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends and give us a 5 star rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you have any questions or if you'd like me to cover anything in particular, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. We have only one more episode to go before Sedia gets underway, which will be later this week, but until then... I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli sempre!